0: Well, welcome to the New Year's special edition of Another Bottle Down. My name is Mark Rayshap, and I am joined in the studio by wine experts and personalities in the Austin community. Shad Scott, uh, who is area manager of Austin for Pioneer Wine Company, a local distributor. David Salinas, who is enologist and key accounts manager, also from Pioneer Wine Company. And uh, uh, Christina Walther-Mogish, who is with Specs Wine and Liquor. She is working on the floor during the holidays and uh just going crazy trying to give everybody the proper recommendations thank you all for being here um Yeah, I'd like to start off this edition, we're we're going to be talking about champagne for the next hour or so, uh, 45 minutes. Um, and, And champagne has so many complexities that we might not see or appreciate when we just are seeing the bottles on the shelves. And uh, first, I'm going to start off uh, by saying that what we are going to be talking about over the next um, 45 minutes or so is going to be focusing on the region in France of of Champagne. So uh, I know that we've had other editions of the show that is about Prosecco, about Cava, about sparkling wine in general, but we're going to be talking about Champagne from the Champagne region and why it's special, why it's a little bit different. So um, are you guys down with that? Of course, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I think that there's there's a little bit of a sparkle that lights up in every wine person, wine lover's eye when the word champagne is mentioned. Um, can, Shad, can you start us off by telling us, you know, why a champagne is special to you?
1: Sure. Uh, like I said, in the first uh, show we did together uh, years ago now. Uh, Reese- last, and, year. last year. Last <laughs> year. Riesling and Champagne are so exciting to me to this day, you know. Uh, I just feel like there's a lot of vivacity, a lot of uh, intensity, electricity, and uh, it's just a fun uh, fun beverage at the, at the end of the day uh, with a lot of history and uh, diverse flavor profiles. And uh, it personally means a lot to me because it's a place I've
0: been yeah. Uh, and it is, it's got a lot of magic. And we're going to delve into some of the stories and the anecdotes. And uh, David, you spent quite a bit of time in Champagne. And tell us a little bit about that. And, and were you, uh, what motivated you to, to to do that? And I mean, there is something magical with Champagne, right?
2: There certainly is. I think um, it's probably best to mention that i lived in France from about 2009 through 2014, yeah. um, graduating with um, an analogy degree. And part of my master's thesis was on the vineyards of Champagne. Yeah. And that really sort of started a little bit as, um, as a kind of challenge because um, so many of my classmates felt that Champagne did not have terroir, that you know, there were so many kind of like complexities to it that by the time that you got to the wine itself, um, the specificity of the vineyards was kind of diluted. Um, so I sort of took up that challenge to say, look, these yeah. are wines of, you know, great uh, individual expression. Historically, they've been a blend of different vineyards, but today you find people, individual small growers doing great interesting wines.
0: Right. And and so that concept of terroir. So so t- tell us why your classmates at the time thought that champagne didn't have terroir and 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 you know, this concept of terroir being that a wine is from a particular place from a particular place and time, right? And you can taste that place in the wine. Right.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's probably, um, it's it's interesting to point out that, you know, Champagne has not always produced sparkling wine. There was a time hundreds of years ago that it was a still wine. And, um, you know, there were individual villages and individual vineyards that were known for making great uh, single varietal wine. So, for example, Petit Pinot d'Ailly, um, yeah. a village uh, in the northern part of Champagne, um, but I think basically people have the idea that champagne, as it exists today, is something that allows you to make so many different decisions at different points of uh, of kind of cellaring and of aging that the end product is something which is not very representative of the vineyard that it comes from. Right. But um, I think you can certainly do basically a tasting tour, go through and taste a Pinot from uh, the Montagne de Reims, go through and taste a Muyer. From the Valley de la Lamar and go through and taste a Chardonnay from the Côte de Blanc. and I think you'll see that there's tremendous expression and variety, and ultimately terroir.
0: So you're going to be arguing, and I think we all are going to be arguing, as far as you know, folks might see the labels out on the shelves and say, "Oh, I just like this brand and this and that," and you're saying. Uh, we can really tell where the wine is coming from by tasting it in all the sub-regions and even down to the village, right? Yes, certainly. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to develop that kind of that, that idea as we go along. Christina, you know, you were in Champagne this year, right? And, um, and you uh, work at Specs and, and you have a, a, a number of, a, a very large Champagne set and very large wine set at your disposal. You know, Whenever I talk with you at Specs, you are always, you know, very quick to want to talk about champagne. What what does champagne mean to you, you know? Uh, so
3: champagne for me, um, I am, you know, I, I just got out of college not too long ago. And I was um, a history major and really thought about pursuing my Ph.D., and decided instead of spending another six years in school and spending a lot of money, uh, I found that wine and specifically champagne allowed me to uh, pursue uh, learning about different cultures and languages and uh, what makes up their history in a much more social and entertaining way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the Champagne region's history is so rich um, and impactful. Uh, when you look at monarchies, wars, occupations, everything, right. it's so um it's so interesting. and <laughs>
0: That was what, what what drew me to wine all along. I mean, there, there's something that's hard to define about it, but it links history, it links languages, it links culture, it lang- links cuisine. And mm-hmm. and I think that it's our love and our collective love for all of those things that, that really pushes us to, you know, study champagne and, and really love it and, and, and want to have these great experiences with our loved ones and our friends, right? Shad, what what um, can you give us a little bit of an overview of the Champagne region? Or you know, you've been there several times, right? And um, you know, what does it look like? Does it look like Bordeaux? Does it look like Burgundy? And you guys can jump in mm-hmm. too. Um, you know, what are what are we looking at? Are we looking at one valley? Um, uh, you
1: know, no, I think it's it's not as mountainous as say the Rhone yeah. or Pre or something. You know, it's uh, gently sloping hills. It's, uh, you know, row after row of green Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, you know, green, brown, so green, packed. brown, just, mm-hmm. just huge, vast land. And some of it is quite chalky, so it's green, white, green, white instead of green, brown. <laughs> <laughs> right So uh, down in the Cote de Blanc, you have a lot more chalk. Yeah. You know, Vallée de Mar is more Pinot Noir and uh, clay and just kind of your uh, average uh, subsoil you'd find in any wine region. But, you know, it's a big area. And it's uh, it's the closest to Paris, so it's it's actually pretty easy to visit uh, yourself. It's um, lovely little villages uh, peppered throughout. Uh, Ronce is in the middle, which uh, is a great place. And again, if you're visiting, uh, the the prices are incredible, so you can you can get you can afford more champagne there than you can here. <laughs> so it's a great place to just dive in and start buying bottles from a wine bar. Right,
0: right. So so we've got so we've got you know main I guess uh, geographical locations. We have, you know, Roms to the north and then Epernay in, in the center, which is kind of the epicenter. Um, how how do you, you know how do you guys think of it when when you look at a bottle of champagne you know what is the first thing that come that, that you ask yourself where does it come from what the produ- what is the producer I mean how do you kind of decipher a bottle maybe that you don't even know who made it David you wanna
2: yeah I think um, you have to begin with the place. Specificity. There's this idea that uh, champagne is a wine that comes from a single place. Uh, it doesn't come from California. It doesn't come from Australia. It comes from this kind of delimited uh, region uh, within uh, northern France. And it's, let's say, roughly the size of Rhode Island, about 1,400 square miles. Um, so I think that place determines weather patterns. It determines soil types. You can find... You know, Shad mentioned uh, different types of chalk. Right. Sometimes you can find chalk that it's really close to the surface. Yeah. And sometimes you can find chalk that's you know five, ten meters uh, below the surface. So that you know sort of impacts the, the growing season, the uh, the grapes, and ultimately the final quality of the wine. Yeah. Um,
0: Why is chalk so good good for the vines? Um.
2: You know, Champagne sort of being a northernly region is affected yeah. by things like frost specifically spring frost. So if you have a soil that can kind of drain moisture effectively, then you can have something that has the beginning of its growing season a little bit earlier and also reaches ripeness a little bit earlier. And that's super important if you're historically kind of at the upper limit of where grapes were able to ripen. That's less of an issue today because of climate change. But um, the chalk is ultimately kind of like one of the, let's say, set factors that kind of gives you your your options from moving forward from there as a grower. And yeah. that would probably be my second thing that you know, sort of comes to mind is the choices that the growers, their families, their ancestors have made historically and the choices that they're making now. Yeah, And I think that that's where a lot of, let's say, the, the specificity, the uniqueness, and the great kind of drama is being played out Uh, At that level,
0: yeah. So, Christina, you know, we we were talking before, and you mentioned the fact that when you were in Champagne, you thought it was remarkable that you were not visiting large negociant houses, is what we call them, or the the large Champagne houses of what we all think of, you know, Veuve Cliquot, Moet and Chandon, Bollinger, you know, all of these large Champagne houses. But you visited a few, right? Yeah. But but you were more interested in the growers, and this goes along with what David was talking about as far as you know there is more of a an interest in where the grapes are coming from, right? How, so, so I guess my question is, is for folks listening out there who might not be able to distinguish what a grower versus a negociant house. I mean, you know, how how do you how do you first go go by identifying that?
3: So your big houses or your negociants who make the wines but buy the grapes from smaller growers. Um, so your Moet, your um, you know your Mum, your Bollinger, your Veuve Clicquot, Um, they're kind of the ones that everyone has known traditionally because back in the day growers didn't have the means uh, to make you know the equipment to make their own wines Um, and you know thanks to uh, a lot of people like Terry Thies who really kind of got behind growers um, a few years ago uh, we now have a lot of growers that are being imported in who are making their own wines and I think that that's become very popular, um, especially with my generation, the millennials. Yeah. Yes, um, to to really be supporting one, just like f- the idea of supporting a family business, um, I think is really strong. Like the local movement, plays into that. Um, but yeah, it, it's not a, a disdain for the bigger houses, but it's an interest in the individuality of those small growers and what they're bringing to the table.
0: So we should say that you know you guys are are really maybe pro, uh, you know, small grower mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, is <laughs> that might be, 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 an understatement, but is, is there a, an advantage to these large negociant houses? I mean, is there, I mean, they've, first of all, they've, they've, I guess, uh, carved out the entire industry, you know, um, what's where, where do you guys stand on that debate? I mean, is there, uh, an argument to be, uh, drinking some of the larger houses, um, or, or should we be only grower? I mean, what, what's, what's kind of the argument there? Shad, do you want to, do you well, want to feel I, this?
1: You know, I've heard this argument for years. Uh, t- about 10 years ago is when I started selling Terry Thies 12 years ago. And, uh, you know, the, the, the big houses were saying, well, we benefit from being able to buy our fruit from anywhere. So right. if one village gets decimated by hail we can buy fruits from, from somewhere else so and, and so they're working with a certain like whiskey mindset where it needs to taste the same and so they're going for continuity and they're going for this. This when you buy a bottle of vove you know what it tastes like. Mm-hmm.
0: But but is there an argument for complexity? So if you're buying grapes from 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 different vineyards uh, and a variety of different vineyards, is there an argument for complexity there?
1: That that's also part of their argument is right. because we buy wines from all over. We have uh, complexity from different terroirs. However, I think as uh, any wine geek will tell you, you can get plenty of complexity from a single parcel of wine. Right. right? So one little plot of land can give you all the complexity uh, known to wine. So I would argue, uh, obviously we're all (laughs) on the same side of the argument, I think, but I would argue that growers have no trouble uh, achieving uh, complexity uh, with one little plot.
0: You know, for for the listeners out there who are saying... um, you know, I, I know that I like the flavor of, of this bottle that I've had year in and year out. And then to try a small grower, I'm not sure if I'm going to like, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to like it. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm going to, you know, risk a special opportunity to, to try something new. Um, you know, I think that there's there's a ser- serious kind of impediment there. There's a serious hurdle that we need to get over, right?
3: Well, I think that one of the um, the things that a big house does offer that a grower... Uh, can't to a certain degree is definitely the the aspect of reserve wines and the that added level of complexity. Um now I'm also extremely obsessed with Bollinger, so you'll have to excuse me for that. Um but the fact that they have seven hundred thousand magnums full of reserve wine in their cellars that they can use to basically like you know, add little dashes of interesting um, flavors, you you can't get that with a small grower. Yeah,
0: can we, can we develop the idea of reserve wines for yes. a second here? Um, because I think that that's an interesting thing. Um, when you see a bottle on the shelf, and, and and something like 80% of all bottles, maybe more, are non-vintage, so meaning mm-hmm. you're not gonna mm-hmm. see a vintage on the bottle, um, do, uh, but, but still those wines are usually based in a vintage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so then the idea that uh, these reserve wines, which are wines that are stored in the winery uh, year in and year out um, and, and maybe 10, 15 years back, that can go in and be blended to create the house style, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys have anything uh, you know, to add on, on that reserve wine? And then, and then does that really make a difference? I mean, And, and how do we really know, you know what is going into these reserve wines, et cetera, et cetera?
3: Well, because I think, um, again, for example, you know, your vintage wines are supposed to be um, showing what that vintage year was, and that's going to be your individual year-to-year wine when you do declare a vintage. Um, But I think that the reserve wines, especially the ones that have been aging for a significant amount of time, so uh, for like 15 and even up to 20 years, um, you can get such a unique level of Kind of flavor and aromatics that you wouldn't be able to get from uh, a store that wasn't that big a reserve wine. Yeah,
0: but I see there there are growers that are there. There certainly are. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. sure. You know, just
2: without getting into a heated debate and just a (laughs) little bit of a correction to say that you know, let's say the Renaissance or the, the the coming out of growers as being sort of an alternative to the houses that. In many cases, went hand in hand with the usage of reserve wines. So you think of an Anselm Saloos, you think of Barrechy, you think of Chateau d'Allier, you think of Fabrice Puyon. Uh, many of the growers that you know we work with and pioneer, these are growers that you know on a daily, you know on a yearly basis, use reserve wines and right, have the reserve right. wines sure. there. And oftentimes, you know they're stored in what are referred to uh, colloquially as solera systems. They're often mm. not fully solera systems, but um, I, I think the point to take away is um, many of the larger houses are looking for that kind of continuity, as uh, Shad mentioned. Um, you right. get that through the blending. So, you know, many times the large houses will taste the still wines after the first fermentation and say, we're going to blend all of these different vineyards and try to have a, a kind of house style. Um, but, but in addition to that, the reserve wine is kind of there to add longevity You know, this is a wine that has been slowly exposed to oxygen, many times in tanks, in a kind of controlled way. And that adds a kind of a backbone that allows, let's say, uh, a brute non-reserve wine to have a little bit more length in terms of its aging capability. So, um, you know, sometimes you can put away, uh, you know, a brute reserve for a few years, come back and taste it, and it hasn't fallen apart. Right. So, so for me, when I think of the usage of reserve wines, I think of, you know, kind of adding a little bit more longevity to, to mm-hmm. these kind of entry-level wines.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean that 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 is you know it's all in perspective right I mean it, you know you don't need huge reserves of reserve wines if you're only producing 2,000 cases of a champagne right mm-hmm. um, and is and, and that's typically there they're, they're, they're may be stored in different vessels too and there's a whole there's a whole other slew of variables that go into the vessel that the wine has been in before it actually goes into the bottle right uh, but
1: just one more thing on yeah, reserve wine sure. this, this
0: is just another uh, infinite complexity
1: of champagne, and I think that's that's why I'm still trying to wrap my head. I've been there two or three times. I I've been tasting champagne a long time, and I still yeah. am trying to figure it out. You know, there's so <laughs> many things you can do, whether it's you know you know mallow or wood or reserve wines or you know, there's so much going on with champagne, and and that's why I think it's confusing for a lot of consumers. They they just don't know what they're going to get, yeah. and it's an expensive risk. Mm-hmm. To just like, I'm going to take a crapshoot here and just buy this bottle. I know nothing about it. But that's also going for a wine guy. I think that's part of the mystery and the magic that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. You know, it's like there's so much that could happen uh, with any bottle of champagne. And then you add bottle age to that. Yeah. And it keeps changing.
0: So the first thing that you would say, you know, and and, and just kind of to to expound upon this as far as the regionality and this and that, I mean, for a consumer out there, who wants to know a little bit more about where the champagne is coming from. What would Mm -hmm. you say? I mean, um, know the name of a few villages, a few prominent villages and kind of explore those. I mean, is that a good technique or for me, it was, it was learning, uh,
1: top manipulant versus negotiant. Okay. Learning what champagne should taste like based on these big name, these big houses that have kind of blazed the way and trademarked champagne and what it should taste like, you know, kind of the, the typicity. And then, uh, then beyond that is sugar levels. You know, so those are kind of the first three things I look at. Is, you know, uh, beyond producer is is it a grower? You know, what's the uh, what's the sugar level like? Right, you know.
0: Well, we're going to talk about sugar levels, but we have we need to take a short break here. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for listening in. My name is Mark Rayshap. Uh, we're here uh, in the co-op studios with our New Year's edition and talking about champagne, all of the ins and outs of the real stuff, the real uh, the real champagne, the region, the wines. I'm here with Shad Scott, David Salinas, and Christina Walther-Mogish, and uh, we'll be right back. Stick with us. All right, we're back. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. We're talking champagne, uh, all of the wonderful pleasures of the bubbly wine from the northeastern part of France. And and so, you know, you guys, uh, I'm with Shad Scott, David Salinas, and Christina Walter-Mogish. And, um, you know, you guys have been many times. I'd like... You know, I'd like us to put a face to the the region and, and some of the producers. Um, you know, what are some of the the impactful moments that made impressions on you throughout your time visiting there? You know, maybe we can go and, and tell, you know, one of the most impressive stories that, that um you want to start us off, Shad?
1: Sure. I, uh, my first trip, I think my first producer was Jean-Francois Clouet, yeah. Andre Clouet. And uh, I really didn't have... Uh, any clue what I was getting into. So uh, this guy's a bit of a joker, and we go behind his house. Uh, His parents are inside cooking like a nine-course meal for us. (laughs) And we go behind his house, which is a vineyard. So I wasn't expecting just your backyard to be a vineyard. And uh, (laughs) then there's like where I would keep my yard equipment in like a back shed yeah. Well, that was a portal to a whole nother layer for him. I mean, there wasn't a lawnmower in there. There was a staircase down into the earth. <laughs> okay. And so each layer had reserve wine laying down, waiting right. for uh, some guy like me to, to to gaze upon it. So basically, he took us down below the earth in this uh, seeming shed. It was kind of like Doctor Who or whatever you know. I was like, <laughs> and uh, we, <clears throat> so he's like, you know, pick out a bottle. We pick the '96. And he's like, all right, this is a trick I like to do. I can actually uh, shoot this cap in your pocket uh, from a great distance. So I was like, okay, great. So I'm I'm sitting there holding my shirt pocket out, and he's like, all right, y'all ready? Got your cameras ready? Boom, and just soaks me in wine. You know, just sprayed it all over me. And uh, So he didn't get it in the cap? No, he didn't care where the cap ended up. I'm just soaking wine. He's like... Do me a favor and take the she out of Champagne. Like, really, like, I'm sick of people taking this wine so seriously. Yeah. Like, we like to have fun. This is just grape juice. Like, let's get over the whole pomp and pride of it. Let's let's get past the elitism. Right. And let's just enjoy Champagne every day. Yeah. Because it's great with food. It's fun. It, it gets everyone jazzed. Uh, let's just uh, let our hair down and not get intimidated by this
0: yeah so so enjoying it uh, on on uh, you know to celebrate it in itself instead of instead of the pressure to have it being to the to put the cherry on the the cake of a nice celebration i mean it it will make things more digestible right mm-hmm. yeah i think so what david what what um you know you've spent a lot mm-hmm. of time there what what are some of your favorite stories
2: i think i'd give two examples sure yeah the first sort of a more sort of solemn sacred one and uh, the second a lot more fun But um, the first, I'd say, um, visiting Alexandre Charton uh, for the first time, I had the the chance to look at um, basically a record book that his family had kept as to the quality of vintages going back into the 15th century. And you can sort of go through and see this is what, uh, you know, the vintage in 1696 looked like. And um, that kind of dedication to quality, to a How much detail? Place.
0: I mean, how much detail? I mean, was it like it rained on, you know, June 18th, you know? for Yeah.
2: You know, th- they were broad strokes, yeah. but at least a reference to the quality of the vintage, if they were happy, things like this. Right. And to be able to kind of like see the document of that, and that, you know, sort of gives you an idea of the history and, and the typicity. Right. Um, I'd say the second example that I would give is just sort of hanging out with several different growers and going from each cellar to cellar, saying "Try this wine, try this wine," yeah. And then you know, sort of driving around Champagne in this kind of caravan, and uh, finally ending up in a Chinese restaurant where everyone yeah, had sort know. of like brought each each one of their favorite bottles and you know sort of seeing that kind of relaxed uh you know atmosphere of kind of camaraderie right. but also just sort of enjoying champagne as something that you don't just have on special occasions but that you have sort of on every day just kind of casual basis right
0: yeah christina you share, yeah. share a, a wonderful anecdote
3: so, when I first arrived in um, Champagne, I had scheduled my very first uh, meeting like three hours after we arrived on, uh, on French soil. And um, we were You ready- didn't waste any time. No, not show. at all. Right I was like, I had three days in Champagne before going to Bordeaux. So, I was like, all right, we're going to do one right out the gate. We were going to go see Jean Pierre Marniquet, who's a small grower in Toul. And uh, rented a car. Turns out they had upgraded me, which was sweet, but I had no idea how to drive this car Um, (laughs) because it was a six speed manual and I'd only ever driven a five speed. So, coming up to Jean Pierre Marniquet's um, place, I stalled about four times in front of him as he's standing there, like trying to show me where to park. And I'm so nervous. This is my (laughs) first time in Champagne and I'm just like making a fool of myself. And he was absolutely so welcoming. It was just him, you know. He's like, yep, these are my vines. It's very pretty. Um, took us into his cellar that was built uh, or dug in 1707. Yeah. And uh, was used as a hospital during World War I. Wow. And there were still, like, pieces of helmets and shells and uh, and just getting to really, like, feel uh the chalk for the first time and uh, just be with someone who is so genuinely happy with his life and what he does. It just like all of the nervousness and the scared kind of feelings completely went away and it was amazing.
0: So, we, we, you know, we do want champagne to be more part of our everyday repertoire, etc. But, you know, there are kind of a, a little bit of a tiers. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, maybe entry level and then, you know, what it means to be Grand Cru and then uh, what it means to be like our prestige cuvées and, and, and that sort of thing to allow people to kind of break down because I think every producer will mm. do maybe something that their that their that their brand or their winery is kind of based on like the lion's share the the, the you know the the house style and then go from there.
2: Yeah, so um, we sort of begin in the vineyards yeah. and um, uh, you know as we mentioned it's a rather large area and um, you know over the last let's say 60 70 years the vineyards were classified into either grand cru or premier cru And, uh, you know, this is something which um, speaks to an idea of the quality of the grapes. But I would say, you know, for all of us in the industry who have the chance to try all, you know, various different kinds of champagne, you you don't always see an exact correspondence. So I would caution against the idea that, you know, automatically this, you know, level of crew corresponds to this level of quality. Quality, right. I I would, you know, certainly recommend have your kind of journey into Champagne be an exploration of individual growers yeah. or individual vineyards or, you know, why not? negociant houses and their individual styles. Right. Um, but yeah, don't, I would say, don't get bogged down in this idea of this is better. This is, uh, you know, superior to something else. I would say, um, there's a lot to explore. Right. There's a lot to love. And there are wonderful wines that are being made by growers throughout
0: the region and at all different levels. Yeah, you know, we, we've we've talked a little bit about before the show about um, you know some kind of things that are that are happening that are new in the region, um, you know. And I'd like to talk about the the one of the third grapes <laughs> or the third, you know, the, what people think of as maybe the third grape. We have Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and then we have Meunier. and Shad. You, you've mentioned that you're seeing more producers do Meunier and being proud of it. Yeah. Meunier is
1: enjoying a moment of uh, popularity right now, which I find uh, exciting because I've always enjoyed, uh, you know, Aubry, Jafois, you know, these uh, people that are not scared to use Meunier and and to brag about it. Um, It is, uh, it's, it's growing in popularity. And uh, I, my recent trip this year, I hung out with Jean-Marc Select and, uh, he fancies himself a Meunier expert, right. and uh, we blind tasted. and a lot of times I thought it was Pinot Noir, and it was actually Pinot Meunier and Chardonnay. I mean, it's it's actually uh, just as complex and beautiful and uh, enigmatic as the rest so of So is the...
0: that why people kind of got down on it in the beginning, because, you know, they thought it was a little bit of a simplistic grape, and...
1: Yeah, I think they thought it was austere and just simple and fruity and a little farmy and funky, and, and that was about it, you know, it was, it was more of a, a helpful grape to grow. It was frost resistant, you know, and uh, you know, it was like kind of money in the bank, but now it's where, I think we're exploring it for, you know, a single varietal uh, expression, which is pretty exciting. And I, and, and I didn't know until this year, uh, uh, the possibilities. Yeah.
0: Know. David, do you see this Meunier kind of revolution as well?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's um, something to be said for climate change, which yeah. has allowed, um, I mean, Nothing exists sort of in a vacuum, so it's Meunier planted in the Valley of the Moor in specific types of soils grown by a specific grower. And um, I think, you know, historically the knock on Mounier was that it wasn't age-worthy. Right. And I've certainly had experiences um, in individual cellars tasting recently disgorged Mounier, 100% Meunier, from the 60s and 70s, and I can tell you that they are very much Age-worthy. <laughs> they are fantastic wines with real complexity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Champagne has this history of having a wide variety of grapes that were uh, planted and then sort of uh, beginning sort of with the Second World War, kind of streamlining that down um, into, you know, the grape varietals that we're familiar with today. But every right. once in a while, you know, you can find Petit Melier, you can find mm-hmm. Arbonne, you can find Pinot Blanc, and this sort of ties back into... The idea of grower champagne where you have, you know, growers who are putting out 100% Pinot Blanc, 100% Petit millier, These are out there in the market. So
0: we're maybe not, not in, you know, a, a Meillier revolution, but in like the, the the variety of champagne, you know, all of the the things it has going for it, right? Yeah, Almost
3: like a rediscovery of past history as well, like... Uh, You know, realizing, and especially I'm wondering if that was partially because of the phylloxera crisis Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, after they had all of that kind of trauma, just deciding to only replant the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir, but realizing that there's so many other uh, nuances that you could get from all of these other grapes and recovering what used to be.
0: Yeah. So um, now, now um, you know, we mentioned, you, you made reference to it, that you're part of this, you know, coveted wine market of the millennials. And, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of wineries are trying to, you know, really market towards and, and embrace the millennials. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's interesting because the production is somewhat tied to also what the market is either demanding or accepting of right Mm -hmm. and and so you know you know you and your own wine purchasing and enjoying you know and you're also your peers do you search for those kind of hard to find things and um yeah how how does that factor in
3: i i think it plays into this idea of one i hear a lot uh this like term unicorn wines everybody's all Mm -hmm. about the wines that are like super unique and super kind of out there and not mainstream and not traditional. Um, and I think it goes into the whole, like, hipster thing to some degree. Um, so you think we're
0: going too far almost?
3: I don't know if we're necessarily going too far. I think that the the discovery is awesome, but I think that our turning back on some of the tradition, it's almost like it's kind of how Bordeaux's not cool anymore because it's too, um, it's too, like, traditional okay. and to corporate which I, I can agree to some degree on on the corporate but I think that we're really searching for unicorns and uh, as far as Millennials go and turning our back on some of the more traditional uh, things in the wine community
0: yeah hmm.
1: I, I think social media also plays a, a role you yeah. know oh. the more social media becomes uh, ubiquitous you're gonna see certain clicks and there's there's this you know definite uh, kind of enlightened, uh, wine individuals who post a lot and and so you start to see certain bottles popping up mm-hmm. you know and then the, it creates a demand which you know so i think uh social media has a has, has a huge role in why these unicorn wines uh pop up because they're hard to find yeah, yeah. and everyone posts a picture of them you know so they're they automatically uh, leap up in popularity yeah
0: and and is it do you do you find that dangerous or 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 you know no i i
1: think anything it, all this excitement about wine is excitement right. about yeah, wine yeah, exactly yeah, for sure
0: <laughs> well um i mean let's let's change gears a little bit here and um and unless um You know, uh, what else are millennials drinking? (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah, clue us in.
3: Well, that's the thing is that um, I am definitely more of a wine drinker than a beer drinker. There's definitely the craft beer movement um, going on, especially in Austin. Um, But yeah, I I think that like moving away from uh, traditional areas. So instead of drinking, you know. Uh, Chianti and Brunello they're drinking Sicilian wines and it's the same thing with champagne instead of drinking Big right. Negociants they're drinking uh, growers and I think that's great to be branching out and not to be brand specific yeah uh, but without losing sight of what made those previous uh kind of idols great yeah so. yeah
1: like they're rejecting what their parents drank you know yeah. this is stuff it's a rebellious old, kind of yeah, thing yeah and that's why the craft spirits craft beer it's craft wine, basically.
0: Well, I mean, yeah. one of the things that strikes me, too, is that in, in you know, the younger crowd, um, people are less likely to purchase the same wine twice because, mm-hmm. you know, you want new experiences, whereas older generations want this, like, the safe, this is my brand Let's go with that. I don't care what else is out there, you yeah. know. Clicquot duck
3: Duckhorn, and that's it. Just but, but that's
0: incredible for the wine industry, right?
3: Yeah, yeah,
1: like our parents can stay in the same job for forty years, drink the same thing every yeah. night, you know, eat the same foods. <laughs> Where I'm at a different restaurant every night, I'm drinking a different bottle every night. I'm trying to have a new experience every night, you know. And I think, and I'm I'm older than millennials uh, substantially, mm-hmm. so I think millennials are even more you know, focused on having a unique experience every day of their life. And I think wine can play right into that because there's a zillion wines to choose from.
0: Right. And do you think that there that there's going to be kind of like this? Do you think that it's going to keep going that way, or is it gonna is it going to kind of come back and and because I, I've heard a lot of people talking about okay, there's growers and, and there's the, the grower movement is expanding. There's more and more on the market every 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 month every year. Um, is there going to be a weeding out? I mean, can we can we sustain all of this?
2: I think um, it's always important to sort of remember and value the point of context that we have here in Austin. You know, great wine directors, great wine programs they are kind of responding to that demand and sometimes, you know, trying to be a little bit ahead of the curve. Right. People like Paula Restor, people like June Rodell, people yeah. like Mandy Nelson. Um, and I think it can be a bit of an arms race. It can be a bit of, look, I have this mm-hmm. wine mm-hmm. that you don't have. Right. And, you know, you certainly see it in social media, this idea of this is a wine experience that most people will never have. And so I think if there's kind of a limit, uh, maybe even a bit of a pushback, it would be, you know, I want to kind of like put out and promote the wines that everyone can have access to. Right. And I think it's kind of encouraging that kind of big tent idea, which is, of course, there will always be unicorn wines that are out there to be had, but there are great wines at you know very reasonable prices. That can be found in many places, mm-hmm. so I think that's you know something that you know is to the benefit of wine in general, but champagne specifically. Yeah, you can find some you know great value, sometimes half bottles by the glass, uh, grower champagnes, um, at you know different restaurants, different retailers, and um, this is something to to kind of be valued. At.
0: Yeah, and and so the different formats are something that that we can talk a little bit about. Um, you know, do you see? There is some talk about the champagne tasting quite differently uh, when it's been had out of a a Magnum versus a a 750 milliliter versus a 375. Do you guys have impressions on that? I only drink Methuselah and Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. I've been to your parties, and uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is true. Two people have to hold the bottle before it, yeah, right. and the ice bucket is a trash can. Yeah. So that's how I roll.
3: I mean, I still find that like retail-wise, people are still kind of afraid of Magnums. Yeah. Um. They they kind of see it as like... A commitment?
0: O- too much of a commitment? Or
3: going overboard, and it's like, you realize if you have like over five people in your group, you're going to go through that one bottle super quick. And, and there are the benefits of, you know, the aging benefits and whatnot of a Magnum. Plus like you wouldn't be opening two different bottles that could have different things going on. So there's, there's benefits to it, but there's a little bit of pushback still, I think, to committing to a larger format as far as retail experience has been.
1: Right. You also have to look at who's coming to your, your event. Like if Mark and I are going to be there, (laughs) you better (laughs) better show up. (laughs) You better have some large format bottles cuz we are a
0: wide mouth wine enthusiast. <laughs> well, um can I can we can we jump into some um into some recommend not recommendations, but I want to say like what are some of your perennial favorite champagnes and then maybe um what has been a surprise this year for you? Christine, you want to start us off here. You've been at the end.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so first of all saying perennial favorites um, I I've only been drinking wine so long so it, it's still all developing <laughs> for me but um, millennial favorites. Yes, millennial <laughs> uh, sorry oh, hey,
1: but yeah jokes.
3: I definitely I definitely um, go more towards Pinot Noir heavy um, champagnes just for my own uh, personal taste so. Uh, yeah, Bollinger, man, I'll drink that all day. Uh, it's Especially being fermented in oak, it's just so rich and inviting and uh, just the history of the house as well. It just feels so grand. Yeah. Um, but as far as like small surprises or, or interesting things recently, um, small producer Wari uh, Hubert in the Côte de Blanc, uh, 100% Chardonnay, really like almost asian woodier mushrooms like makes you just like crave thai food um mm. man that's been super cool and completely opposite side of what i drink normally
0: yeah well i'll, I'll post these too sometimes pronunciations are hard uh, I'll, I'll post it on the co-op blog k-o-o-p dot o-r-g slash another bottle down um yeah guys what do you think perennial favorites yeah, I David?
2: Think, I think we have a slight bias towards uh, the grower champagne. Sure, yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, um, going back to kind of that anecdote that I share, uh, the wines of Alexandre Chautong are, you know, fantastic. cuvee Santan, again, something that, you know, is still somewhat pricey, but, you know, within reach, more within reach than, you know, some of the Grand Cuvées or certainly right. the Magnums. Um uh, his wines, I think, are you know always have this great tension, which we were talking about earlier, yeah. and but still some of that richness that uh, you get from uh, Pinot uh, Pinot Noir. I'm
0: and with you, man. Chardonnay is always is is a perennial favorite of mine. Yeah.
2: Um, I I guess I would also add the wines of uh, Fabrice Pouillon, uh, who is new uh, to mm-hmm. Texas. Um, this is uh, a wine uh, imported by <laughs> Kevin Pike of Shady Wines. And um has you know gotten great reception um at the place that it's been poured. um but yeah i I think um it's always exciting to kind of like go through and see who's who's kind of new on the scene, yeah,
0: so that was a new wine. we tasted that uh before the show here, mm-hmm. and um it was a new wine for me and you know and it and it was it was a, a surprise, it was delightful it had. You know, this red fruit and this richness, but still, you know, very fresh and lovely. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And thank you to Pioneer for for sharing it as well. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, I I was I was super, super pumped by that new Mm -hmm. find for me. Yeah, Uh,
1: my perno favorites uh, from the big house would probably be Krug. I I just every time I have that, it just seems to be uh, if aliens came down and like told me about champagne, I'd be like, oh, this is probably (laughs) a good starting point. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, but I, uh, my new uh, discoveries would be, uh, like I said, Jean-Marc Select um, and uh, Varnier Farnier. I, I think we're both huge yeah. fans of that guy. Uh, uh, Cedric Mousset uh, is a producer. And, and it generally, I think what I'm leaning towards is the mineral, you know, acidic, kind of edgy, nervy, electric side of champagne where you're, where you're jazzed up yeah. uh, and electrified by these ones. So, so,
0: so Varnier Farnier... I, I, it, he always it, it, it's interesting because he actually bottles with a little less pressure mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so th- that, there's a whole you know we, we've only glanced on many of the the, the the intense variables that can that can go on to create an entirely different experience in Champagne but uh, the pressure and the amount of bubble in Champagne is not all the same and he does his a little bit less to give this 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 aspect of creaminess and plus
3: slightly higher dosage on his wine too you, you visited too, like, yeah. him Like, up to 10 grams per liter, which is a little bit higher than a lot of people do. Um, Yeah, his wines are, they're, you know, mostly Chardonnay-based, being an Aviz, but uh, they have this, like, warmth to them that you don't expect is going to be there. Plus, he has vines that are, like, up to 65 years old, so... There's yeah. so much depth from that too. Plus, we're best friends on Instagram. Just so you know, oh. um, he's always in Italy. He's, he's always <laughs> in. <the> sub- <laughs> he's so uh, he's so up on social media. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> what uh, you know, uh, uh, as far as the debates too. I mean, you know, we mentioned some some of this dosage and the sweetness. Um, you know is is can can we kind of talk about the debate there i mean we we were talking about it before the show mm-hmm. as far as you know you might see on the back of the label 6 grams per liter of dosage uh, and and um you know, but it's more of a story than that, right? I mean, um, why does sweetness not always matter? You know, and and is is the drier the better? I feel like we're in a time where everybody's like, oh, I want the driest champagne possible. Um, but that's a that's a debate, right? I mean, um, how do you guys feel? Is it for you guys, uh, the drier the better? Christina, would, 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 I mean, from the millennial standpoint.
3: So I think that yeah. I think that for for me um, I come from a standpoint personally of balance is always better. So if that wine you know requires a little bit more sugar for balance, then I think that's the way to go. Right. Um, I do think it's dangerous to start saying that the true champagnes are only the ones that are brute zero or have no sugar added because. That wine might not call for that. Right. It might really need, you know, it might need 10 grams. It might need six. It, You know, it, it's not right or wrong. It's what creates the best balance, in my opinion.
1: Right. Yeah, and that I think that speaks to the artistry of champagne making. There's yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. just putting yourself and, and deciding what needs to happen, uh based on what you're given that year. So I think that's a very important part that uh, we've glossed over is just, uh, and we've talked about all the variables that make up champagne and contribute to the complexity, but, Uh, I think we overlooked the uh, kind of artisanality. The most important. Yeah,
0: okay, yeah.
3: (laughs) Like intuition that the the winemaker has to have.
1: And even though there's a religion of uh, no sugar, sugar is evil, you know, this is a fed up documentary, I think. Talking about sugar is is poison. It's going to kill you. Mm. So I think there's this uh, this new wave of people avoiding sugar at all costs. I don't know if they're ketogenic or whatever, but... uh, (laughs) But sugar is <laughs> demonized right now, so I think people—I yeah. think they're making more extra brut wines, and they're making more brut extraams and non uh, dossier wines than ever before. And I—I th- I really think it's this this, uh, this global movement to get away from sugar addiction.
3: Although what I think is interesting is that while people will talk, it's that whole like Americans talk dry but still drink sweet. Mm -hmm. I think that people are asking for really, really dry wines, but they try them and still turn back to the sugar. So I think that this could be a pretty short-lived fact.
0: Yeah, is this, this, you know, super dry champagne, is it an American phenomenon and is it the market driving the -hmm. producers to do that? But David, do you think, do you, do you have a, a behind-the-scenes uh, perspective there? Yeah, I mean, I think,
2: um, you know, so you sort of begin with the idea of the ripeness of the grapes, right. and um, you move on to, you know, what vessel was the wine uh, initially vinified in, um, how long was it stored, um, and so that in combination with what we sort of talked about, um, uh, this, this, uh, this uh, process of dosage trials, where mm-hmm. you sort of test out different levels of sugars. And I think, you know, many times what you find is that it's not sort of like a linear progression. Right. Um, and so it's I think... sweet spots, you find
0: this like sweet yeah. spot, yeah.
2: So this kind of touches back on what Chad was saying, this this kind of artistry, which is, you know, ultimately uh, what you're tasting um, beyond kind of natural intrinsic factors of terroir. you're tasting the palate of the winemaker. The winemaker, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, that is the individuality, that's the diversity, that's the exploration that can be had. Yeah. Um, yeah. And
1: I think that also plays into what we were talking about uh, with so many wines being offered and this whole wave of wines. It's going to roll back. That wave will come back. And I think the people that, you know, the experts are going to weed those out for us. And we can just kind of stay on the sidelines. I'm going to trust this this producer's power. Yeah, I'm going to trust this Master Psalm to... I assume he's tasted all of them and he will pick out the ones that are ready for the table.
0: Right, right. Well, um, we're going to take a short break and we're going to be back with some final comments. If you're just tuning in, Uh, my name is Mark Rashep and we're here with Shad Scott, David Salinas, and Christina Walter Mogish. And uh, so stick with us. We'll be right back with uh, some final champagne thoughts getting ready for the New Year's holiday. okay thank you so much for tuning in uh this is another bottle down on co-op radio and this is our last episode of the year we're talking about champagne um and i'm joined in the studios of co-op with shad scott david salinas and christina walther mogish um guys thank you again for being here and i know that the holidays are such a crazy time for wine professionals And, you know, you all probably waking up early tomorrow and 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 just busting your hump on on every, uh, you know, every moment to, because there's just so much going on so uh, you know thank you for for being here and taking the time to, to spread the word about champagne thanks for having us yeah, yeah. thank, you, thank you Yeah. so uh, you know we kind of mentioned about it just enjoying champagne outside of the celebratory moments of course we're we're talking about champagne because we're going to be celebrating the new year <laughs> but um, how do you guys you know think about champagne on a day-to-day basis I mean in terms of just um, food pairings and mm-hmm. is it so oftentimes a better pairing than you know, say you know your white wine. I mean, w- do you have uh, champagne over Sancerre with oysters, etc.? You know,
1: I think uh, champagne with uh, seafood and, and stuff that you would typically pair with Chablis and Sancerre. Would, uh, that's a that's an obvious one. You know? Obvious, okay. But I think we want the non-obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that, that my favorite application is just to get things going, just to yeah. just to get things started. You know, to to get your uh, Get your your mind set for uh, a culinary experience, you know, or it doesn't have to be celebratory. It doesn't have to be we're getting married or we're so that's the end of the year. You know, this is a we're going to have a great meal tonight and this is going to kick things off. It's going to get it's going to get us jazzed up and excited. And it's also going to, you know, the acidity is going to get your you know your taste buds uh ready to, to take that journey. So I think I think it's a great way to start any meal, but it it can also go through the whole meal. Like yeah. I mean it, the acidity and the uh the delicateness of it uh makes it uh, a great pairing for a wide range of food.
0: Yeah, can we do champagne with meat?
2: Of course. Yeah. Definitely. One one of my favorite pairings, steak tartare. Yeah. Or like, you know, a medium rare burger. You know, it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be, you know, food that's uh, you know, everyday and then.
0: And would you do rosé champagne with that, or would yes. you go, yeah?
2: In fact, uh, the Charton taille rosé that we had in one of my, you know, sort of go-to burger uh, champagnes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Or with wild boar, I mean. Oh, <laughs> or duck, right? Yeah. I mean, I think of uh, of champagne and duck all the time. Christina, your favorite your favorite champagne pairings?
3: Oh, well, like I was talking about earlier, like a nice... Uh, a nice kind of Thai dish with a lot of um, like lemongrass yeah, and yeah. Uh, not too spicy, a little bit of chili, but some mushroom, and like it can really play really nice with a lot of those uh, blanc de blancs and. I think when you think of how much you you often spend on a, a cab, or you know, especially from Napa um, mm-hmm. or a there like a lot of these grower champagnes are not out of reach in the in a you know a weekend price range. Sure, right. we're not all drinking really expensive wines all the time, but it's I don't think it's um, out of the question.
0: Right. Right in the wheelhouse, you know you mentioned this idea this this mushroomy c- component and and champagne's umami. one of one of my favorite um things to have with this you know this umami, umami uh, broth mm-hmm. th- this umami broth mm-hmm. um and umami is that kind of that 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 uh, creaminess um that it, it's the translation translation is a sense of deliciousness and mm-hmm. and it is that that creaminess, but you know you also get that with with Aging champagnes too. And so, you know, I think that a lot of people think, oh, we need to drink non-vintage champagne right away. Vintage, we can age. But um, is that, how do you guys feel about that? Yeah, so um, when I was um, working at
2: uh, Chamber Street Wines in New York, I actually did uh, an email offer that focused just on the umami characteristics of champagne. Mm. And we offered, you know, five or six different champagnes that were good examples of that. And it really does go back to this idea of Lee's aging. Yes. Um, you know, lees are these kind of magical things, the the remnants of the yeast, um, which are able both to kind of enhance good aromas and both capture and kind of like do away with uh that kind of off aromas. So yeah. lees aging is something which gives fantastic um longevity in terms of, you know, aging potential, but it also goes into that kind of tactile sensation, that creaminess. Yeah. Um so yeah, it, it's uh it's something that um, it's
0: kind of one of the great strengths of champagne. So you have champagne, though you have you have the aging uh, on the leaves, which which mm-hmm. gives you this umami character. But then once we have the disgorgement, and then now it's under the champagne cork. Mm-hmm. Um, can 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 the bottle be aged uh, post uh, disgorgement? Cause I feel, uh, you know, it's a different kind of aging because like you say, you know, that yeast kind of buffers it a little bit Mm -hmm. and it captures, you know, just like what you, what you had mentioned. But once, once we have the champagne that's bottled, that, that is disgorged, you know, it does, is there like almost an expiration date?
3: I think it kind of depends on your your preferences. Like, sure. there's something to me. Uh, when I was at Bonaire, uh, he brought a bottle out, and it was golden. And he was like, what age do you think this is? And I, and I took a sip, and it ended up being a 1985. Hmm. And um, it barely had any spritz left. Like, the bubbles were going away. But there was something so, like, it made me think of, like, spice cake. Like, a tart cream cheese and the spices in the cake. And it was just like, oh, my goodness. It was so amazing. And I'm like... It's not the the send electricity through you kind of champagne experience that you have with a really fresh champagne, but there's so, there's a place for this, yeah. and it was a really amazing experience.
1: It also gets more body and weight and yeah. a sherry quality to it that uh, I think makes it better for stuff like steak tartare and mm-hmm. uh, and meat dishes. You know where you need something a little more a little more body, a little more substantial
0: right right but
1: yeah the bubbles going away is kind of a bummer because I, I took for me personally you know i i've never been a huge fan of uh older wine because i feel like it loses a lot of that nervy acidity and intensity mm-hmm. so uh, you know i i respect uh, a well-aged wine but I, I prefer uh young and and kicking
0: yeah but 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 you know the wine changes and, and that's the that's the wonderful yeah. thing about wine is it's hard to grasp any and and each state has its own merits right mm-hmm. you know Would would you you have something to say, David? Yeah,
2: I would say um, a couple of things. Um, The first is that, you know, you can have a um, late-release, late-vintage champagne, which is basically a champagne that's been stored, uh, you know, in ideal conditions in a cellar in champagne for, you know, 20, 30-plus years and then can be just recently disgorged and recently released and you have a certain experience of that. Or you can have a champagne that, you know, was had its disgorgement 15, 20 years ago, and has had only that kind of oxidative aging. Um, And, you know, I think both are kind of unique and magical kind of expressions of the same wine originally, That's sort of like different versions of them. Um, And that's, you know, that's the complexity, that's the joy.
0: yeah i mean one of my one of my favorite trends that is happening is that more producers are doing a recently disgorged or late Mm -hmm. disgorged bottling and it's just fantastic um because you you can have you know that 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 youthfulness that that you get from this extended lease aging Uh, another
1: recent trend that we uh mentioned earlier is the um how It's served so the flutes are going away, which I think is a great thing because, as far as enjoying champagne, I feel like the flutes just kind of send it on its way. The aromas right. yep. and the bubbles they just kind of go away really fast, yeah. And you can't get your nose in, in the glass, so you can't really, you know, engage with it like a normal wine. So, th- the more you treat champagne like a normal wine, the more enjoyment you're going to get out of it. And so,
0: wine glasses, wine
1: glasses, white wine glasses. Burgundy, burgundy glass just not flutes. That's that's okay. you know that's, that's my whole. <laughs> I don't care if you pour it in a big gulp. You're just you know the, yeah. the, the more of your uh, you know face you can stick in the the glass, right. uh, the happier I am.
3: I mean, yeah. I still like a nice point at the bottom so you get that really beautiful bubble trail. But it's got to open up somewhere. Mm-hmm. You yeah. don't get anything on the nose.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I I'm in total agreement. I, I like the the big burgundy bowls too. I mean, it depends mm-hmm. on. But then, the, then again, the, you know, the the rule is that I guess just the more opulent the wine, the more opulent the champagne, mm-hmm. the bigger a glass it can t- really take, right? Well, any th- final thoughts, guys? Happy New Year's to you. Happy New Year to you. And and um, what are you got? So so what are you guys going to be uh, drinking on uh, New Year's Eve?
1: <laughs> I guess the new I, favorites, the, the perennial favorites. I, I have a magnum of 05 Gaston Chiquet that I'm looking forward oh. to. Yeah,
0: wonderful. Oh, nice. Yeah. David, what are you, what are you popping? Oh, uh, we'll be popping a
2: couple of things. Yeah. Um, a 2007 uh, Blanchien uh, from, from uh, Fabrice Pouillon wow. and um, also a uh, 2009 uh, Georges Laval. Um, this is his Lichen, uh, cool. vineyard, uh, so super old vines. Crate. Single
0: vineyard. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Christina, you have it picked out yet? Uh, Magnum uh, of Chardonnay?
3: That is a thought. <laughs> also maybe, uh, Andre Clouet, 1911. Okay. Uh, and also probably, a Bollinger, Le Grand Denet, 2004.
0: All right. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> well, um, happy new year's to you all. We'll see you in the new year's. Uh, stay in touch and keep us uh, in tune with all of your wine uh, exploits. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Champagne episode. I hope that you have learned something. I hope that your mouth is uh, is, is salivating, getting ready for the New Year's celebrations. And um, I, I wish you the happiest of holidays. And uh, we'll see you in 2017. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, thank you. cheers.